0: We're going to look at a sampling of verses from Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We've been going through the Old Testament book of Judges this semester, and we have seen each week, I've tried to say each week that, it's in, even though it's a crazy and weird book, it's a collection of true stories that's written with the intent to show you that you have a great need for a Savior, and you have a great Savior for your need. And tonight we kind of get to the last one, we're concluding our whole study of the book of Judges, we'll have a large group here next week, we just won't talk about Judges, we we'll, we got things up our sleeves planned, so um, hang out for that next week, but this is, this is it for Judges, and if you've been with us this semester, it has been a wild ride, I mean, if you've ever interacted with this book before, it is dark, it is gruesome, it is disturbing, And you know when you get to, you know when you're, some TV shows, when you get to the last episode, they do this montage of like all the favorite scenes from the show and they set it to music. And I thought it would be an interesting idea to have a montage of all the interesting things that have happened in the book of Judges up to this point but we're not going to set it to music. But here's, here's some of the things that we've seen. If you've been with us this semester, if you haven't been with us this semester, here's what we talked about in RUF this semester. Uh, the book began with one king getting his thumbs and his big toes chopped off. That's how the book starts, which is fun. Um, then, it, then we found out Then we see a king that gets stabbed in the gut, and he's so large, he's so fat, his fat swallows the blade, and then as he's dying, he poops himself, It's in the Bible. Um, We saw one king get a tent spike nailed into his face. Uh, We saw one guy sacrifice his daughter. He burned his own daughter alive as a sacrifice to the God of the Bible. Um, We saw Samson tear apart a lion with his bare hands like one would tear apart a young goat. Um, Samson had his eyes gouged out. And then we saw last week, if you were here last week, kind of the crescendo of the book. It's maybe the most disturbing and uh, horrific story in the Bible. It's this woman that gets brutally sexually assaulted and then murdered, and then her corpse gets chopped up into 12 pieces and kind of mailed throughout the region of Israel. In mean, the book of Judges, it, I mean, it's a horror movie. It's, it reads like a horror movie. It's a, it's a very dark and it's a very disturbing book, And but here's the thing is that we at RUF really do believe that all of God's word is God's Word. All of God's Word is inspired and authoritative and profitable for us. Even crazy, whacked out books like this. And so um, the, in the last couple of chapters of judges, the narrator offers an explanation as to why this book is so messed up. and that's reflected in the verses that Maxwell read for us tonight of that there's no king. There's no king. You saw it four times in these four verses. In those days, there was no king. In those days, there was no king in Israel. In those days, there was no king. Like, over and over and over, the author is trying to explain the reason why the the world of judges is so messed up and the reason why the world is so messed up is because there's no king. If there is no overarching moral authority, then everybody just looks out for number one. Everybody just does what is best for them. Everybody um, says, you know, I'm not obligated to your view of right and wrong. I can do whatever I want. You you don't have a right to tell me what to do. I don't have a right to tell you what to do. And when people embrace that ideology, anarchy unleashes. In some ways, the book of Judges is just being brutally honest. It's reflecting the world back to you. Now, we talked about that idea a little bit last week, and I want to just take one more stab at it in passing as we kind of wrap up this book, since that is kind of how the book ends. But um, here's what I want to do tonight is I want to look at two things, two big ideas, trying to answer two big questions. um, Why we need a king and how we get one. <coughs> why we need a king, and how we get one. So let me begin by trying to convince you why you need a king, and it's not lost on me that I'm talking to a room full of Americans. And Americans, it's built into our national like, heritage to hate kings. I mean, this is what our country is based on. Every 4th of July, we blow stuff up, we throw big parties, we eat way too many hot dogs, and some of y'all drink really bad American beer to celebrate the fact that we have declared our independence from kings. We don't want kings to rule over us. In fact, if you've ever seen, um, you can Google this, if you've ever seen the, um, the, the image on the Virginia state flag, Here, here's what the image, let me explain to you what the image on the Virginia state flag is. The image is you have a man laying on his back, and a crown kind of next to his head on the ground. So you have this picture of a dead king. And over him is a woman with her foot on his chest and her hand holding a spear. And in Latin, kind of around this image, it says, Sic simper tyrannis, which means thus always to tyrants. <laughs> That's the picture. We don't want a king. And if you come over here and try to rule us, this is what our women will do to you that's what we're saying in the Virginia state flag. We don't want a king. So it's not lost on me that I'm talking to a room full of people that are Americans. But because in America we rejected this idea we don't want a king, we embraced this thing, which I'm going to call for the rest of the night, the American gospel. Here's what the American gospel is. The American gospel is this. I have the right and the freedom to do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, with whomever I want to do it, just as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. And I tried to show you last week that that is the gospel that is being preached to you from every angle in our culture. That's the gospel that you believe, many of you. That's the gospel that some of you preach wholeheartedly. Yes, I should have the freedom to do whatever I want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. And what I want to try to show you is uh, that the American gospel is a lot like the fire Festival. You remember the fire Festival? It was pitched as this exclusive high-end concert where people would go to this private island and they would ride jet skis with models and go to these shows and eat fancy sushi. And if you saw the documentaries, people bought into this. They literally spent thousands of dollars to get a ticket and then to fly down to this private island. And then when they got there, it was a total wasteland. There were no models, there's no jet skis, all the bands had canceled, there's no sushi, there's there's in fact there was no housing. They had put them up in these like FEMA hurricane relief Tense. There was no water. There was no food. There was no restrooms. It was like a total disaster. And what I want to try to show you tonight is that the American gospel is the fire festival. It promises you, the promises are big. I mean, doesn't it sound awesome? I have the freedom to, to determine what is true for me. I can do whatever I want as long as I doesn't hurt anybody. That sounds amazing. That, that sounds incredible. And, and what I want to try to show you tonight is it's a scam. Don't buy it. It's the fire festival. Let me give you a few reasons why the American gospel is a sham and a scam. Problem number one. Let me give you four real quick. Here's problem number one why the American gospel is 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 um, problematic. It's because it's a message of the privileged of the rich. The American gospel really only works for the upper class. I heard one pastor say you would never hear a social worker who's taking a kid out of a home because of their parents being irresponsible. They would never turn to that kid and say, hey, kid, buddy, I want you to know that the the way that you are going to succeed in life is that you just need to do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, with whomever you want to do it with, just as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Because that's precisely the reason why the kid's getting removed from his house is because that's what the parents did. No parole officer, no judge would look at somebody and say, the way that you are going to thrive is that you just need to do whatever you want to do. People that have suffered know better than to believe the American gospel. It's, 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 it's really just a, a gospel that only works for the rich, only works for the elite. Here's the second problem with the American gospel. is It reinforces dest- uh, destructive and oppressive power structures. It reinforces oppressive power structures. Here's what I mean by that. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, during the civil rights era was arrested in Birmingham one, one time. He was uh, protesting and two days before his protest there was a local legislator that, that made a passed a law that said it's illegal to do any, any demonstrations, any protests. It's, it's illegal. And Martin Luther King and his uh, people had already kind of had this protest kind of set up and so they said we're going to do it anyway. And so they did it. Police came in, arrested him, and he gets thrown in jail in Birmingham. And all these white southern Christians get upset with King because he's breaking the law. And they're like, well, what are you going to do? You're telling us to obey the law when it comes to outlawing segregation, but then you turn around and you break the law when it says don't do any protest. And Martin Luther King writes this letter from Birmingham jail, which you can find, the PDF is online, you can find it right now. And we, you know, historians, now we call that letter very creatively Letter from Birmingham Jail. Uh, And you can read it. I read it this past week. And uh, here's what he says in response to these Christians. He says, one may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just laws and there are unjust laws. Now, what's the difference between the two? How does one determine when a law is just or unjust? And here's his answer. He says a just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. You see what he just did? Here are these white people that said, it's, we're now saying it's illegal for you to protest racism. King, if he had embraced the American gospel, he would have said, well, you know what? What's true for you is true for you. It's true for me, is going to be true for me. If he had done that, then he would have given the people in power no incentive to stop. He couldn't challenge them. He doesn't say what's true for you is true for you. He says what's true for you is not true because it goes against something higher above you. There is a moral authority over and against all of our other laws. And if we don't recognize that, if everybody just does whatever they want to do, then those in power have no incentive to stop oppressing people who don't have power. The American gospel just continues to reinforce oppressive power structures. Here's the third problem. Third problem is that the American gospel is ultimately impossible. You can't do whatever you want to do without hurting somebody because eventually you hurt yourself and you are a somebody. You count. You're, you're a, you count. You're a someone. Think about this. When, when people first get to college, they get here and they're like, okay, wait, there's no parents there's no curfew. There's no accountability. I can literally do whatever I want. I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want. I can smoke whatever I want. I can, I can I, you know, you find out which restaurants don't card. You, uh, you, 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 you know, basically you have all, uh, almost unlimited access to porn, alcohol, drugs, and sex. It's like a very expensive theme park, is what the university is. <laughs> and some of you have discovered have you not, that uh, eventually you do get enslaved to something. If you've been here long enough and you embrace this lifestyle, I really have the freedom to do whatever I want. Nobody can tell me to do anything. That's awesome. You eventually get enslaved to something. Something masters you. Either it's a debt or it's an addiction or it's a bad relationship. Something ensnares you in such a way where at some point you realize, I don't want to do this anymore. This is horrible. I'm destroying myself. And you try to stop and you can't stop. What began as an expression of your freedom gave way to your own slavery. And you're hurting yourself. It's oppressive. It's destructive. You're hurting you. The American gospel is impossible. If you're going to just do whatever you want to do, eventually you hurt you. And then here's the, here's the fourth problem with the American gospel is it tricks you into believing that you're, you live on an island. That you're not connected to anybody else. Because when you start to hurt yourself, if you start to say, I'm I'm going to do whatever I want to do, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, you do eventually start destroying yourself and inevitably it hurts the people that you're connected to. It hurts the people that are with you, your friends and your family. I probably get two or three phone calls a semester from concerned parents that say, I, you know, I've got a kid at UT. I don't know if they're involved with RUF, but I've got a kid, and they're doing X, Y, or Z, and they're just kind of unraveling as a person. Can you go get them? Can you save them? Can you go find them? And I just hear this pain and this fear in these parents' voices because it's hurting them to see the ones that they love destroying themselves. Here's my point is... is For you to say, I want the freedom to do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do with whoever I want to do it, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, it's, it's impossible. It's a myth. It's a lie. It's a scam. You hurt yourself, and you hurt everybody around you when you embrace it. Which, you know, what's really fascinating is I was thinking about this. Our entire... Our entire governmental structure, this is the contradiction kind of of our country, is our entire governmental structure is based on the exact opposite idea of the American gospel. I mean, our forefathers, the people that kind of established our country, as it were, they knew that that human beings are so prone to evil, we cannot give people the power to do whatever they want as long as they want to do it. So we put all of these restrictions and checks and balances in place. We said, we're not going to give power to one branch of the government. Let's split it up into three. The judicial and the... Le- What's the other one? Legislative? Is that one? <laughs> judicial, executive, and the other one. Legislative? Thank you. Nailed it. They said, um, they said we can't just give somebody unlimited power. We've got to put elections in place and, and re-elections and term limits. They realized, if we give somebody the freedom to do whatever they want to do, it's going to be really really bad. We have got to put restraints and limits on people because if people just do whatever they want to do, it's going to be a disaster. You want restrictions. This is why every New Year's, you know, every January you start these New Year's resolutions. This is you recognizing I need some restrictions. If I just keep doing whatever I want to do, it's going to go bad for me. I need to limit myself. That's the whole point of New Year's resolutions. I want restrictions. I need restrictions. I need somebody over me that is telling me, you need to stop doing this. In other words, you need a king. That's my point. Point one, you need a king. Now maybe I don't know if I've convinced you. Maybe at least I've begun to show you that the American gospel is more like the fire festival than you thought it was. But if you're sitting here and you're thinking, okay, if... If I'm even going to buy into this idea that I might need a king, how do I get one? And that's the last thing I want to look at with you. How do you get a king? Well, the Bible's not, um, uh, you know, no surprise that Jesus claims to be the king of the universe. He's not like Aragorn. But he does claim to be the king of the universe. My Lord of the Rings nerds. He, um, he claims to be the king that every human being is longing for. He claims to be the one that you were designed to submit to and to fall under his government. You know, C.S. Lewis said that is such a that is such an outlandish claim for a human being to said i for a human being to say I'm the king of the universe. I'm the reason why all of this exists. I'm the reason why all of y'all are breathing. And your one job in life is to bow your knee to me. That is such an insane statement to make. It is so outlandish and it it's so over the top. Uh, C.S. Lewis says. Jesus must either be of utmost importance or of no importance. But what he can't be is of some importance. Meaning, either Jesus is everything because he is who he says he is, or he should be worthless. We're wasting our time sitting around and talking about him because he's either a con artist or he's delusional. But what he can't be, he doesn't give you room to just have some, to, to be, uh, just have some importance. I kind of like Jesus. That doesn't make any sense based off of what Jesus said. In other words, C.S. Lewis is saying there are two reactions to Jesus that make sense and there's one reaction that doesn't. One reaction says, I'm submitting to Jesus as my king. I want to follow him as my king. But to be honest, my heart is a contradiction because if I'm honest, I want to be my own king. I want to do whatever I want to do too. And so I wrestle and I struggle and I fail and I follow him and then I screw up in my life as messy as a result. But I want to follow him as my king. That response makes sense. Another response that makes sense is, you know what, to be honest, I don't know what I believe, but this whole Christianity thing sounds cray. Cray. (laughs) To say that I'm supposed to give my life to something that I can't see or feel or hear, that sounds insane. I'm supposed to believe this book that was written 2,000 years ago about this guy walking around, all these weirdo stories in it. I'm not buying it. That response makes sense. Because it's somebody honestly processing and wrestling with the truth claims of the Bible. The response that makes no sense whatsoever is the response that says, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I like Jesus. I go to RUF. I go to church. I'm a Christian. But I have have no interest in letting him restrict me in any way. Or I just want to do whatever I want to do. And if that's your approach to Jesus, he's not your king. If if Jesus can't limit you at all, if Jesus can't contradict you anymore, you don't have a king, you have a consultant. A consultant is somebody that gives you advice, and if their advice fits into your vision, it fits into your agenda, and if you like it, you'll take it. But if they give you advice and you don't like it, and it doesn't fit in with your view of the world, doesn't fit in with what you want to do, and it doesn't make sense to you, then you have veto power, you can reject it. And I think there's a lot of Christians on this campus that relate to Jesus that way that say, I I like what Jesus says about X, Y, or Z, but I'm not interested in authorizing him to really tell me how to live my life, to restrict me in any way. And when he tells me to do things that I don't want to do or stop doing things that I want to keep doing, I just don't care. You don't have a king, you have a consultant. And so you say things like, well, you know, Jesus, I'll give you Sunday morning. I might even give you Tuesday night, but I'm not going to give you Friday night. I won't give you Saturday night. Or you say things like, okay, Jesus, I'll give you a month of my summer. I'll go to camp. But I, but, but I am not going to let you tell me how to relate to alcohol. I'm not going to let you tell me how to relate to sexuality. I'm not going to let you tell me how to relate to my family or that I, I need to forgive my roommates or I need to love people on the campus that I just really want to avoid. You, you don't have that authorization. And if that's the way that you relate to Jesus, you have a consultant. You're still the king of your life. You still rule your life at the end of the day. So, how do you get a king then? How do you get a king? You submit to him. You bend the knee to him. You surrender everything. Everything to him. I mean, think about this. Let's just say that you went to see the doctor and the doctor said, uh, we need to do surgery on you. You're sick. We got to do it right now. And you said, okay, okay, I get it. I want to be healed, um, but I don't want you to cut me. And the surgeon would say, um, but that's, we, we have to cut you. That's how we're going to get into you to get out the bad stuff and to heal you. We have to cut you. And you say, no, 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 I know. I want to be healed, but I, don't, I just don't want you to cut me. Then the surgeon would look at you and say, well, I can't heal you the only way that you can be healed is that you have to go to that surgeon and you have to completely surrender. You have to give that person complete control to do to you what might even feel violent of cutting into you. But unless you give that surgeon full authority to do whatever, then you can't be healed. It's the same way with Jesus. To go to Jesus and say, I need you to rule over every aspect of my life. You, you have. I'm giving you. Uh, I'm giving you. Uh, you know, authority to do everything. You get to tell me how to rule my, to do my life now, which means I am now completely vulnerable to your will, not my will, but to your will. Not my kingdom come, my kingdom go. Your kingdom come. Have you know, we seen that song? You know, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my life, every aspect of it how I relate to alcohol, how I relate to dating, how I relate to sexuality, how I relate to school, how I relate to parents, all of it is yours. Now, who in their right mind would do that? Why would you do that? What would compel somebody to say, Jesus, I want to give you everything? Would it be um, fear of like, you know, Jesus is the king, and if we, don't, if we don't submit to him, he's going to send us to hell? Is that the motivation? If that's the motivation, then that's actually tyranny. You don't have a king, you have a dictator. And really, your whole life will then just be pressuring yourself and everybody around you into keeping the rules. And the sad part is is that you'll be riddled with insecurity because you'll never know if you're doing enough. It can't be fear. Maybe for some of you it's guilt. If you're just like, I just feel so crappy. I feel so bad. Of course, I've messed up in this area and that area. I haven't given everything to Jesus. I feel so bad. I need to submit to him as my king. Guilt won't do it either. That's tyranny too. The only thing that will compel your heart to give everything to Jesus and to enjoy doing it is when you have an encounter with beauty. That's the only thing that will move your heart. Think about this. I don't know if you've seen the TV show The Office. Which, by the way, I don't know if you've been keeping track, but I am 14 for 14 on office references this semester, so take that. Um, If you've seen the TV show, The Office, um, in season two, uh, it's called Valentine's Day. Dwight gets up to go get a cup of coffee, and when he comes back to his desk, there is an unmarked brown box sitting on his desk, very suspicious, and he goes, what's this? What is this? And Jim, who is sitting right next to him, says, uh, I don't know. It's on your desk. Yeah, but who put it there? And for what purpose? And annoyed, Jim says, well, it was there when I sat down. And so Dwight pulls out this pocket knife, and he gets closer to it. And he slowly and cautiously starts cutting open the tape. And he, he opens up the box. And he reaches in, and it's a little card that says, Happy Valentine's Day. And his eyes kind of dart over to where Angela is. And her back is, is to. Dwight and she's filing some papers and he reaches in and he pulls out this doll and it's a bobblehead doll of him his face, his little body, his little brown suit and he goes it's me I'm the bobblehead yes! and he just starts cackling and laughing and his face just lights up and he's just marveling with delight over this thing that he discovered and that's what I'm talking about. That's the experience. When you see Jesus as the bobblehead. I'm joking. When your heart does begin to marvel like that, when you begin to when you begin to be moved like that and you just laugh with joy and marvel over this thing, that is the only motivation that will compel you to give everything to Jesus. But this is the question. Then how, wh- how do you get that experience? What, how do you get your heart to move like that? And here's the last thing I'll say. The way that you get your heart to have an encounter with beauty is that you look at the cross. Because what the cross tells you is it tells you that the king of the universe who has all glory and all power stooped down to this broken and messy and brutalizing world because he wanted to be with you. And when you look at the cross, it shows you that you and I have embraced the American gospel and we're contributors to destroying the world. And God's justice is like a gun aimed at us and he has every right to pull the trigger because we're traitors. We're traitors of the king. And Jesus steps in and he takes the bullet for us. He finds us so precious that he's willing to give up everything, himself, in order to get you and me. When you know that you are loved like that, when you know that he went to that extent to get you, doesn't that compel you to begin to want to trust him? Doesn't that give you at least a little bit of confidence the more that you look at the cross that maybe, just maybe, he's committed to your well-being, that you can trust him, that when he tells you, I want you to do this and I want you to not do this, I want you to love this and I want you to hate this, I want you to embrace this and I want you to fight against this, that those aren't just, that's not just busy work. That's the blueprint for how your heart was designed. And as you give yourself over to that, you begin to see more and more and more that he, he is absolutely committed to your well-being. Because he is the king that you were made for. <coughs> Last thing I'll say. If you bend the knee to Jesus, and if you trust him, if you surrender everything to him, He will never forsake you. But the real gospel is not the American gospel. He will will drive you deeper into suffering. In fact, as you follow him, you will get more and more in touch with weakness and need than you ever thought you'd be comfortable with. Following him is not the American dream. It is not health and wealth and comfort. It's a cross. But here's the good news, is that he will forgive you And he will never forsake you. And he will raise you up on the last day. And that's good news. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would help us. Father, we cannot of ourselves bend the knee and trust you and surrender to you. You are going to have to overthrow something in us that is so deep, so primal inside of us that we do not want to give up control. We don't want to submit. We don't want to surrender. So, Father, please overthrow our own hearts. Come in and kick the doors down of our own hearts and capture us with your love and with your grace that we might be found in relationship with you, the very one that our hearts were made for. Would you be kind to do that to us, maybe for some of us for the first time and maybe for some of us the thousandth time. Thank you that you're a good king. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.